Success stories and interviews with game changers and thought leaders who have overcome both in life and in business. Welcome to Vertical Momentum. Hey guys, welcome to hey, another up? Hey, welcome to another episode of Vertical Momentum, guys. This is going to be a great episode uh, with my new friend. He has an amazing book and amazing story, but first I want to thank our sponsors. As you guys know, if you were ever in the military, even for a day, you drank some shitty coffee. And we have a new company that just came out. It's called Soldier Girl Coffee. Female veteran-owned company. Amazing coffee. And now they even have it infused with CBD. So definitely check out Soldier Girl Coffee if you want good-tasting coffee. But, guys, the gentleman that we're going to talk to has an amazing book, Echo and Ramadi. He's got an amazing story. He's changing people's lives and businesses as we speak. So please welcome our friend Scott to the show. My brother, what's going on? Hey, how are you, Richard? You're in. Good? You sound perfect, brother. Great. You sound amazing. So how's your day going so far? Good. I'm uh, actually with you from Bastard. You cut out on me, brother. Your phone probably went to lock. So you can't, you, you're muted. So. Cool. Today, yeah. That's yeah. awesome. So uh, t- talk to us about, you know, I know, you know, you're, you're, a, you're a well-known speaker. You've been featured everywhere. Um, your book has become a bestseller, but it's more about the people that are in the book than the actual book itself. Correct. It is. And I think that, uh, I've been very, very fortunate that the book has become this evergreen where I get readers from not just the military. And I think that that's probably one of the most rewarding things when you kind of barf your life into 300 pages and, and hang it out there for everybody to read is that it, it affects more than just those who served and those I wrote about in Echo and Ramadi because there's so many people across the country and around the world that have sent me emails or messages thanking me for sharing not only this, this about the service and sacrifice of these young men and women who fought in Iraq's deadliest city in 2006 and 2007, but it's really is a story about people and leadership and team building and overcoming adversity, all these things that really bring us together that brought you and I together at this power of human connection that is so overwhelming at times. It continues to humble me. And I'm very, very fortunate to, to meet so many people like you who really get out there and continue to share this story. Cause we were talking before the show about how you love to tell stories. And as a guy who writes and as a storyteller, it's, it's really important. I think to the listeners, um, to the show, it's, it's cool because I that philosophy is, you know, every book is brand new to someone that's never heard of it. And that's really been something great. That's come out of this, this journey that started three years ago, man. I, it's hard to believe. And you know, I, I, I can talk about the book all day, but uh, um, I also love talking about what I'm doing now and what our, our nonprofit is doing now. And, you know, the book's what I did, you know, serving in the Marine Corps for 24 years is what I did. And I think that really what defines people 
is what you're doing now to continue that momentum forward. I, you know, I love that. But first, I like to get, hop in the Wayback Machine. So where are you originally from and what kind of little boy were you? <laughs> Bad, um, in, one, in a word. Uh, I was born in Waukegan, Illinois, far north suburb of Chicago. And my mom, amazing woman, raised me and uh, after my parents divorced. And so, you know, I didn't have a whole lot of adult supervision growing up. And then moved moved back uh, to live with my my dad in high school. And again, it was a bit of a wayward kid. I drank underage. I rode a motorcycle, was my first car. I got in fights. I got chased by the cops. I got caught by the cops. Uh, so I barely squeaked out of high school with this stellar 1.24 GPA. I, I, I challenge any listeners if they can chime in and send you a message that if they could beat that. I doubt it. I think that record stands, but I did uh, much better in college ultimately. But, the, you know, I, I so essentially, you know, at the time I, I was not college material. And were you an athlete at all? Yeah, I played football and I swam and, uh, you know, I, but I hung with a rough crowd and um, just didn't just didn't put a lot of rigor into school. It just really wasn't really just really didn't take with me. Um, and it wasn't until I got a phone call from a good friend of mine and he calls me up. He says, man, you'll never guess what I did today, Scotty. So what? What now? What did you do? Buy another new car? And he says, I joined the Marines and he ropes me in has me come down to meet these recruiters and a 18 year old kid who'd led a pretty high risk lifestyle up at that point. When I met these recruiters, as you know, cause you're in the army that they talk a great game and you walk into the office and there's camouflage knitting over and they're wearing these uniforms with all their medals and they talk a good game. And I thought to myself, man, there is no bigger group of risk takers than these Marines. And I signed up and I enlisted. I went to Desert Shield, Desert Storm, and then ultimately found the error of my ways and hung up my rifle for a little bit. And I joined the reserves as a machine gunner and went to college. And I graduated in three years. What is important about this story is not my speedy uh, career in college, but I say that because I really think it's a testament to what the military instills in young men and women is that discipline and how to treat things like a mission. And that's what I did. I went to high school, day school, preschool, and I was in and out in three years. And I, and I, I think I wound up with like a 3.0 GPA and I worked full time as well. So now one thing I love about Marines is number one, I love all my Marines. Um, number one is I think you have the nicest looking uniforms ever bottom line. Second of all, I love the mindset that once a Marine, always a Marine. I love that mindset, that never quit kind of mindset. So what was it like coming from being a wild child to then going to basic and having to go through, go through that? What, what was it something you quickly adapted to? I did. I think that a lot of people who come from upbringing such as mine really are seeking something out and I don't have a PhD hanging on my wall and I didn't do a thesis on this but I think it's an interesting study of the high numbers of those who come from some sort of broken homes when they get introduced to that military environment I think you're really 
one, you're kind of a seeker. You're looking for challenges in life. And two, it, it really gives you a sense of purpose. And, you, you know, you, you may not have been taught this growing up from the age of birth to age 18 or whatever age you joined the military, but we who joined the military and served in law enforcement, we're this group of protectors. And I think that that's something that is just imbued in us throughout our upbringing is we become protectors in some sense. And that's, there's a call to serve. It's not just hyperbole. I think that really is a calling. So when I was at boot camp, I, you know, even on the way to boot camp, I was the guy in charge of holding everyone's records and in, in the box. And then I was the, the platoon leader, the guy you know, who graduated the top of my class and then, you know, went to the, to the operating forces and continued to succeed. But at one point I realized that, and, and this was probably through seeing some poor leadership that I understood the value of an education. And that's when I decided to go, you know, get off active duty, join the reserves and go to college and uh, really apply myself because I think that's what great leaders do is they continue to challenge themselves. And that ultimately worked out to my advantage, I think, uh, because I gained a lot of perspective, but college taught me one thing. It didn't teach me how to apply my degree. It really taught me how to teach myself. And I've continued to do that throughout my life and become a better learner, become a better reader. And one of the most important things is becoming a better listener. And, you know, and I love that because, you know, even in relationships, if you're married, you know, guys, girls out there, listen, you know, there's a difference between hearing and listening. You know, there's a big difference. And a lot of people don't realize that until they're divorced. And they, and it was a reason why, because they didn't have any communication skills because they did just, they did not listen. They just heard everything. You know what I mean? Oh, I, I'm sure you can, you can appreciate that more having your vision limited to how that makes you a better listener. I mean, I'm I like, the, it's, it's fascinating when I hear how people tune in on that. I mean, did you, did you, before you uh, were involved in that, that tragedy, did you, do you think you were a good listener at that point or did it take you losing part of your vision to, to really understand that? I think it took me to lose, lose my, my vision to start actually amplifying my hearing. And because like a lot of times, if you watch a movie, you're going to miss so much stuff mm. where a lot of times, if you listen to the movie, you'll get more out of it than actually watching it. Mm. So that was something I had to, to learn the hard way, but it's, it's benefited me in doing the podcasting and interviewing. Cause now I get to hang on each person's words and actually listen to what they're saying instead of me thinking, well, what's the next question I'm going to ask? Mm. You know, it, it, no, I think it's a, it's a absolute learned skill to be a great listener. Some people I believe have it more naturally than others, but those who are able to stand in the fringes of conversations and, and listen, I, I pick up on that now and I see these people. I'm like, God, I wish I could be like that person more. Cause I know it's a bit ironic from a guy that travels around the country and does a bunch of national public speaking, but it's, um, it's listening after I give a keynote or an address or a, or a discussion to someone that I get to meet so many interesting people who are way, way, way outside the military circles that I traditionally ran with for the better part of my adult life. And 
I'm, I'm continually learning stuff and I, I really appreciate that. Yeah, that's one thing I love having about my, you know, having my own show because here I am, I have a, a ninth grade dropout. Um, and I get to talk to gentlemen like you, gentlemen like uh, General Petraeus, Joint Chiefs of Staff. And I'm like, wow, I'm truly humbled that God has given me this platform. So I got to ask you, because um, you went from an enlisted man to the officer side. So tell us what that mindset shift was like. Well, it was it wasn't a tough transition for me. And I get asked that question a lot. And I was recently at Camp Pendleton to speak to about 250 ROTC students from across the country and all these programs from different colleges. And one of the midshipmen asked me that question because he had, he had been enlisted before he went to college. And I answer the same way every time is that being enlisted did not make me a better officer, but it absolutely gave me better perspective on how important that young Marine's time is or how important that young, that young soldier's time is. And I never wanted to waste that. So I think that's what I brought along with me when I got commissioned as an officer and, and having the privilege to lead and, and understanding how much the military invests in its officers before they're ever given the chance to stand in front of 45 young Marines or soldiers that the parents of, of them entrust to that leadership because it is an absolute honor and, and privilege that I, I never want to take for granted. And I think that being listed helps a lot of guys. I think there's also people out there that may be a disadvantage because they think, oh, well, I've been there, I've done that. And sometimes the, the, officers that come out of service academies get a bad rap because they weren't enlisted. But I've met scores and scores of some of the finest officers that never were enlisted and, and they didn't need that to be great. And I think that the same can be said for a lot of the senior enlisted Marines that I served with who have much higher degrees than I do, but they make a decision that they want to stay and be operational and do this. And that was a choice they made. And I respect both sides of that. And I love that. Now, like the, the weekend, the day that I got ran over, um, I was such a hard charger that I didn't even go home. I just I finished out my two weeks training, but they put me in and I'm half blind, but they put me in for the first time ever. They put me in a talk. And it was at that point at that point, I never realized how important looking at the big pictures, you know, cause like I was a tank commander. So that was my job. Mm. All I thought was my guys and my platoon, but I never looked at it at the big pictures until the Sergeant majors and the, the, the generals and the majors would actually sit and plan for the whole United States. So I never really took that into consideration till the week that, you know, after I got hurt that sometimes we don't, we're so busy looking at our, our little thing that we got going on that we don't really look at the big picture. That's why it's pretty amazing that you were able to be on both sides so you can see both sides of the fence and make the right decisions, you know? Mm -hmm. So talk to me about your, your book, you know, cause I, I read it twice. Obviously um, I love the book and it's not just, you know, a lot, a lot of people look at the book. It's a, it's a people story. 
and I'm the kind of guy that I'll cry at a on a heartbeat. I'm I'm a wussy like that, and I actually got choked up a couple times because it's more of a people book than I think a war book. Correct? Is that how how you yeah, it meant is. it? I'm sure, I'm sure people look at the cover of the book and they see this silhouette of a badass marine who's gonna <clears throat> kick in your door in the middle of the night and do bad things to you, which we are vastly uh, and well equipped to do. But I couldn't put a vase of tulips on the cover of the book it's uh wouldn't have sold any copies but we went through the process of interviewing over a hundred people not just my marines and the soldiers who fought alongside of us in iraq in 2006 but the families to really pull these stories of not just the fighting and friction but also some of the the things that were going on while we fought and then some of the things that happened after we came home things that happened to me things that happened to our other marines who have sadly committed suicide and to share their stories because those are the real stories that were important to me it wasn't so much making sure that this significant historic battle didn't fall under the shadows of the kandahars and the baghdads and the fallujahs but to share the power of human connection and that was the most important thing to me that I didn't want to lose that when I wrote this story so it's not a war story it is a story about people and that's been amplified thousands and thousands of times uh, from the, the feedback you get when you when you share that because I think that was the most important thing to me and for any of the listeners that don't understand where Ramadi is or what was going on there that was um 2006 at the height of the insurgency in Iraq the country and Alambar province had turned into what I call this giant game of whack-a-mole where well-trained insurgent groups were popping up in cities like Baghdad and Fallujah and then we would just hammer them down and they'd go to ground and then they'd pop back up and then when George W. Bush and General Petraeus ordered the surge strategy it really allowed us that power to go in and cover down on all of these cities and in 2006 Ramadi just happened to be where they decided to make a stand and fight and it was some of the bloodiest fighting in modern urban warfare and we were fighting five six seven times a day a couple times a day in direct contact with a very well-trained enemy force and we lost marines and soldiers and we had casualties but we also killed a lot of bad guys and that's what our job was at, at the end of the day and it wasn't a metric of success that we killed this many people and we you know we are winning the metrics of success Richard was bringing as many guys home with me as I could alive and that's how I defined winning because at the administrative and strategic level, the planners, I don't think they ever defined what winning was for us in this war. And 15 years later, we still have troops in Iraq. We still have people, you know, people in Afghanistan. And this has been a, a, a talking point for me on, on several interviews about why we invested so much treasure, capital, uh, the finest young men and women to fight these wars when we never clearly defined what winning was. And that isn't something a bunch of veterans sit around and cry in our beer about, woe is me, we lost brothers and sisters, and it was all for naught, because we don't talk about that. Uh, we do our job at the tactical level, and we get results that are, that are 
our orders to follow. And I think that, you know, there's an aspect of the book uh, that really addresses that and, and sort of not just my frustration, but I think that it's emblematic of a lot of soldiers and professionals who fought in this war really want to understand and ask those questions. And I continue to ask that question uh, in different forums, but it's important to me. And, you know, some of the the parts of the book that touched me, I mean, like I, like I said, I have to read what, if you see my Mr. Magoogle ass, you'd laugh. Uh, but um, some of the parts that really touched me is when you, you know, people like um, people that are not military, they don't realize that, you know, the husbands and wives that are home, they go through the same deployment that we're going to through. Mm. They're just home. And sometimes they have to take on a father, a mother, the financial role. And sometimes we kind of neglect to th- talk about the people that were left behind us. And like one of my friends, his name is Charles Strange. He lost his his son. He was one of the um, 32 SEALs that went down in the helicopter in Afghanistan. And you don't really think about the Gold Star families and stuff like that. So that's one thing I think about your book is it really touches on how there's a war going on at home, at, at abroad, but there's also sometimes a lot of stuff that goes on at home that really doesn't get talked about. It's, it's interesting because a lot of the families that don't live, or it, it's kind of a double-edged sword because a lot of the families that don't have a, a robust support structure that live close to military bases like San Diego or Jacksonville or Fort Benning or where, wherever they're at when there's soldier Marine goes away. There's some people in Iowa or Nebraska and they, they're left alone and afraid as their families are out fighting these wars. And at the same time, those people near those bases may have resources, but they become lost in the sea of other families that really need services. And when we talk about our gold star families, those moms and dads and husbands and wives that lost their loved ones in, in combat, you know, they, they, they'll never be able to replace that person. And, you know, as hard as it is to, for some people to connect with them, it, they have to know if there's any gold stars listening that, you know, they inherited this, you know, 250 additional sons that they lost theirs and whether they like it or not, we're here for them. And that's part of what we try to do is to stay connected with them. And, you know, I've been so fortunate to, you know, be involved with uh, so many people that are doing such great things. Our nonprofit save the brave.org is partnered with Herschel Woody Williams foundation. This, this, um, this month, as a matter of fact, to, do a really cool auction for a, a rifle that Woody signed. And he's the last living Medal of Honor recipient. And um, BlackstoneArms.com built this rifle for us. A, this You'd love it. It's a sexy M1 SOCOM. It's not like your grandpa's M1. And, you know, they've built 81 Gold Star Family Memorials across the country to date. And I was just with Woody in Texas. And uh, he continues to inspire me at age 96 for what he's doing for our Gold Star families. And every year I get invited to come up to San Francisco at the Marines Memorial Club and, and you know, spend the weekend with our Gold Star families in California. And it, it just, it keeps me connected, I think. And it, it's, it's 
something I think I have the capacity to do. I know everyone doesn't do that, but I like to think that it's part of my responsibility as a leader to stay connected to those families because we're here for them no matter what. And it's uh, you know, something I'm very grateful that I do have that capacity to do because again, not everyone has that. Not everyone has to write a book. I don't want to say this, but if there's veterans out there that are listening to the show and you know, you're struggling with your purpose or your mission in life, or you're thinking about you're on that breaking point where you're going to be pushed to that isolation point where suicide pops in your head. You have to know there's so many people out there that want to stay connected to you and really help and, you know, save the brave.org. That's what we do. We connect veterans through outreach programs and bring our tribe together. I think it's a lifelong mission for me to do that in addition to everything else I do. And that's, that's a job I take on willingly, Richard. And, we take no money for it. I, I don't get paid for it. Like you, you you're a storyteller and you, you're, we're doing it for the greater good. And at the beginning and the end of every day, I really, really believe this is that if I'm not out there helping other people, I'm not helping myself. And that is what I do. And it doesn't, it doesn't do anything, but fuel my tank is, as far as soul food goes, you know, when, when you're helping other people that need it. Yeah, and I love that, and it sounds like you have an attitude of gratitude, like I do. So while you were in, and then we'll just then we'll hop on to what you're doing now. But while you were in, um, like for me, you know, I got thrown out the first time for being a drug addict. Everybody knows that. I got back in, and I got, as they say, got my head out of my ass. Um, one soldier a year, and all that good stuff. But the biggest title I ever got was when I became an, an NCO and that's when I actually really lived the NCO creed to where it was always about my guys taking care of my guys, you know, cause there's an old saying that, you know, people don't care how much, you know, until they know how much you care. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a great uh, part of being a leader, you know, cause people could, they say, you, you know, you could respect, you could respect the rank, but you don't have to respect the man. So talk to us about, what real leadership is it, you basically stole my thunder there but i, I say that a lot is it, it never matters so much about how much you know so much as it matters how much you care and i could teach marines a lot of things i could teach them how to run faster how to shoot straighter how to be a better problem solver but i could never teach them one thing i could never teach them how to care and i think if you don't wake up every morning and passionate about what you do and you don't care, you got to find another job. You, you certainly can't lead Marines into combat. You certainly shouldn't be in the military because it is such a people business. What we do, we're so bonded through shared adversity and our loyalty to our service branch and to our country and to our families. But if you don't care about that in your heart, it's all for naught. And that's probably one of the biggest leadership pieces of advice that I give aspiring leaders. And that's probably what I told those guys and girls last week when we were sitting out on the range at Camp Pendleton is that you have to care because the responsibility for those you lead is so great. And, you know, that's, that's the, I'm not going to say I was the best listener my whole career, the best leader my whole career, but I was very, very fortunate to be surrounded by 
so many great leaders and mentors that ultimately become friends. And I think that people throw that word mentorship around a lot. I, I don't necessarily subscribe to the the definition. I think it's more of friendship and, and caring. And you pick up the phone and you call and you check in, and you check back on those people that you've led. Because that's one of the things that is a, a difference in leadership styles is I'm not just content to say, well, I served 24 years in the Marines and I was in this unit, I was in that unit. I led these guys, I led these, I continue to lead them. I think it is a commitment of lifelong leadership uh, and staying connected to all of those people. And again, being one of those people who's, you know, I've done this. I think your phone might have locked because you're on mute. I can't hear you, brother. So, guys, what we're talking about, we're talking about being a true leader. Um, I think that I've been told that I've been I was a good leader and that people were willing to run through walls for me because they knew that I cared about them. Um so I think, you know, what we're talking about is even in the business world, you know, there's a difference between being a boss and being a leader. And if you and if you've ever been in the military, you know that there's great leaders that you worked with. And there's probably some crap, crappy leaders that you went that you had. So you know, if you if you guys are listening to this and you're trying to decide what kind of leader that you want to be, um, definitely try to start like we were talking about earlier. You know, try to listen more and, you know, try to, you don't have to be that huggy, feely kind of guy because you probably get in trouble for that now, by the way, with the, everything that we're going through. Um, but try to care a little bit more, you know, try to listen, try to, you know, take do active listening because sometimes like we're talking about hearing is different than listening. So we're talking, so yeah. we're talking, yep, I don't know what happened, but oh, well, so we're talking about leadership. Um, now you did over 24 years in the military, correct? Yes. So, I mean, obviously the things I talk about are not sexy and all that stuff, but when you decided to um, hang up the uniform for the last time, did you come out okay? Did you notice anything was off at all mentally? I, I don't have any regrets. I think that everybody knows when it stops being fun or you, you know, I had some, 
service related injuries as well that um, I just wasn't able to keep up. And I think in fairness to the people you lead, that's the responsibility you have. So I, I made the decision to retire at 24 years and I, I don't have any regrets because I was either a Marine or leading Marines my entire time. And I got some really great jobs. Uh, I never had to get jammed up with recruiting duty, which is a great job or do a Pentagon tour. I was always operational. So I, I don't look back and say, man, I wish I would have done that. Or man, I wish I had done this. I think that I'm pretty, pretty happy with the choices I made throughout my career and that they served me well because I, I was exposed to a lot of great people along the way. And, and I still am um, because that's the really cool thing about continue to be connected about, um, you know, the, the military tribe is, is staying connected and, and helping other people up as you go. And what I loved about your story is you, one of the key components of being a great leader. And especially when you enjoy sitting where we do now, is you share the losses and the failures of, of what you did early on. And I think that's what really great leaders who continue to lead do is not talking about the wins and, not talking about how great I was, or I did this, and it, everything is punctuated with that I, 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 but all the things you failed at, so others don't have to repeat those same mistakes. You know, and I love that, and, you know, mm -hmm. like I've been in recovery, I've been sober now, I just hit 32 years, January 1st, but, you know, in the program, it says that, you know, I get drunk, but we stay sober, so it's mm. always been a we thing, and, and I believe, you know, in having your your team and your tribe but i find you know now that i've interviewed so many people that you know when they get out you know not only do they lose their career um they lose their mission and then they lose the camaraderie and they feel all alone and they start to isolate so what was your transitioning like well i started working even while i was on terminal leave so i it was a easy transition for me to go into the private sector. And I wasn't one of those belt fed guys that was all oorah all the time. I, you know, I always understood that there's a time to be militant and there's a time to be civil and the Marine Corps, although it's a big, big part of uh, what shaped me, it never really defined me as a person. It, it I was very grateful for the experiences, but as I transitioned, it wasn't that difficult for me. And it wasn't that difficult because I also knew that I needed to stay connected to just balance myself out during that transition period. And working in the private sector for a couple of years, I, I just decided that I didn't have to do this one thing for another 20 years. I can do something else. And that's when I decided to shift again and locked myself in my studio and my ranch and wrote Echo and Ramadi. And that's been something that I've been really happy to do is to share that story. But that again, that's what I did. I did that three years ago. And I, I think it's all about what you're doing now and what you're going to do in the next five years that you really have to focus on to continue to be successful. Now, when, you know, because when I wrote my first book, um, it was very cathartic but it also ripped open a lot of wounds that had needed to be healed, needed to be healed. So what was your writing process? And was it very cathartic for you? No, I, I went every time I write and I've been writing a long time is it's, it's math. It's, 
it's a math problem you you have to solve to create that story and it all starts with the greatest story that you feel passionate about telling and then breaking it down into three great parts beginning middle and end and then all of those elements to a great story that how the story arc evolves and those series of progressive complications and the wins and the losses and that hero's journey and how you tie that all in together is is something that's how i approach whether it's a thousand word article for usa today or working on uh, another book or working on my documentary it's always a process so i didn't have this big catharsis where i hit typed in the end like you see in the movies i'm like weepy and tears and tears of joy it wasn't like that the the real awakening or catharsis i guess comes each and every day when i get emails from readers that i don't even know who are again may not have ever served i got this one email richard from a nurse in west virginia it was it was a few months back and it's it's like this five scroller email and i'm thinking oh great because it starts off with I read your book and my daughter's dating a Marine. I was like, this, here we go. Like, I'm going to get it. And she goes on to tell me about how she wanted a better understanding of what Marines do and the service and sacrifice. And she was a nurse in, in this emergency room in West Virginia. And I just felt really compelled to email her back because the one thing I shared with her was my gratitude one for reading the book, but also the fact that she has an understanding of not just loss and trauma every single day and dealing with that and compartmentalizing that, but also being in a position where you can see healing. And I think that that's something we forget too, is this group of people that take care of others that can't take care of themselves is we just see the pain and the trauma and the worst of humanity at times, but we don't reflect enough on all of the healing and all the the greatness that comes out of it, even, even war, when you're surrounded in this environment of death and destruction and the, the worst of humanity, we don't have time to stop and smell the roses. But I have, have often thought back to that about how war is in, in the, the, that chaos and friction of combat is really a beautiful thing. When you look back at it, not, and I think that's, not in the esoteric sense, but the landscape as it's presented to you and the brotherhood and sisterhood that can only be forged in combat and the things you experience. When I look back on that, that to me is a remarkably beautiful thing. And I think it's, it's hard to put that in perspective for a lot of people, but I, I like sharing that message and I like sharing other people's stories too, that reach out to me and tell me how it impacted them. Because when you, lead and you write and you share you're not doing it for selfish reasons it's like oh i hope i get a thousand emails and people love this or you know you don't seek that out and you could go your entire life not even knowing you've made an impact but when you get those pieces of feedback from people marine soldiers civilians that you have made a small impact that's that's meaningful stuff to me yeah, you know, I, I interviewed when I first started doing this. I interviewed a guy. His last name was Hendrickson, and he's been on like nine deployments. And yeah. he told me, you know, he said, "I've seen the worst of people, and I've seen the best of people." 
and I, you know, and he's like, and I, and I was like, wow, that that's really amazing. And he said, yeah. He's like, when I was at my worst, there were people that were at their best. So that that I can under totally understand. You know, yeah. And anybody listening, Orion Hendrickson is a good yep. friend of mine that I met in Tennessee. Tip of the spear. Yep. That's a shit hot book that people yep. need to read too, because. It's and again, Brian did an amazing job telling that story because it's not just about kicking in doors and jumping out of airplanes. It's really about it, the losses and, and trauma that he endured throughout his life that made him who he is today. And he's been really successful. I'm so happy for Ryan, man. He's crushing it. What a great person, you know, yeah. awesome individual. But now talk we're gonna talk a little little bit about business because this is also a business podcast. Um, you know, a lot of times I'm seeing people that are getting out of the military. Um, they want to start a t-shirt hat, t-shirt company, hat company, coffee or liquor. Um, six <laughs> months later, they're $10,000 in debt and don't know what the hell just happened. And I think a lot of it is because when we're in the military, we're taught about, you know, standing operate, you know, SOPs, you know, we're, we're, we're taught about having, doing a nine line, but we really don't prepare when we want to go into business and do stuff like that. Mm. And, and one of my friends, um, was on is on shark tank you know he always says that you know if you don't have a business plan you don't have a business you just have a hobby that you're spending a lot of money on so what are your thoughts about the military and what good things it does can teach you for business in the future well i think that you you have to invest in yourself to be successful whether you're um, entrepreneur, whether you're in the restaurant business, whether you're a writer in the entertainment business, you have to invest in yourself to be great. And you also have to do one thing, understand what your value is. And you would be amazed at how many people I talk to. And I ask them this question, what's your hourly rate? And it's dead silent. They have no idea what their hourly rate is no fucking clue i said i know what my hourly rate is i know what i'm worth i know what 10 deployments and being a best-selling author and all of my experiences and all the schools and everything i have i know what my worth is and if you can't articulate that into your business plan you're going to continue to struggle or fail worst off and i think that Again, you have to you have to be able to balance that based off of your experiences. Now, obviously, a soldier or Marine that's got four years and did this and does, doesn't have you know, my experience. So obviously your value is going to differ. Um, but I think it's very important because the other problem that I've noticed in the veteran community is we lead this life of service. So we are geared to do things for free and if you don't understand what you're worth and you continue to have that mindset like oh, i'm going to do all this for free you're never going to get ahead because the problem is that there's also this perception from the private sector that oh you are a veteran oh you served your country you're going to continue to give it away for free i got news for you no i'm not going to give it away from free because no one can tell my story like I can tell my story. And if you can find that person that's similar to that, who wants to do it free, great, but it's not Scott Husing. And I don't say that for selfish reasons. I say that for the sake of reality, man, is that you got to pay the light bill. You have to provide for your family. You have to continue to get to that level. And it's not to pad your savings account. For me, 
I would rather do that and be hard on myself and be shrewd in business and successful in business so I can give back and help other people up. I think that that is, that's, you can call it my philanthropic mentality or altruism or whatever it is. But I feel like if I can get to this level and it allows me to have the resources, whether it's my network connections or financial resources to really help other people later on in life, that's my goal. And I think if you continue to struggle, continue to struggle, and you continue to help people give it away for free, you're really not helping anyone. And you're certainly not helping yourself if you don't know what your value is. And being able to say no uh, more than you say yes, that's a very tough thing for veterans to do because we're not geared that way. I mean, I, I don't know how many times you've heard it, but it, it's it continues to to plague the veteran community and in, in, in the majority of people I've talked to. Now, there's a lot of exceptions to that rule. And um, I'm not well, sure who no, we're talking about Shark Tank, but if it's Eli Crane, like that guy, you know, he's he's been crushing it with Bottle Breacher and he's got a great business. I mean, I suffered for a while for the same thing because, you know, it's always being in recovery, you know, being in the military, you're always doing something for others. And then, you know, you, you know but now I'm learning that you cannot pour from an empty cup. So, you know, like I'm, re- I'm listening to a book right now. It's called From From Homeless to Billionaire. And he was talking about how he was able to take care of his mom when she was sick and give her the best medical care before she passed. So I think when we start thinking to that, you know, we, like you said, if, if we don't have anything in our cup, we can't give anything. We mm-hmm. can't be we can't help anybody else. If we're struggling, if we're drowning, we can't help somebody else that's drowning. Mm-hmm. So I totally um, get that. So now talk to us about what you got going on now, what you're doing, what's the plans, what you got. Well, I'm, I'm currently working with, um, I mean, I, I have interest in a new restaurant that's opening up in Las Vegas uh, called Fly Pie that I was brought in. And I, I help Nick Velez with uh, the new opening of Bastards American Canteen in Temecula, California. I'm writing two books uh, at the same time, but really the front burner item for me on a creative side is a full-length feature documentary that I'm very fortunate to be working with um, an executive producer, Anthony Zucker, who's created this little show called CSI that most people have heard of, and Pete Turner, who's the creator of the Break It Down Show podcast. Who I've, I been, on, I've, been, I've been on that show. Yeah. Pete is amazing. Uh, Peter is yeah. um, the the documentary itself is, um, you know, I, I can't talk about it too much because it's in, in pre-production right now. Um, and we're, we're waiting to get it, get some more, um, some more information to get it funded and start, you know, get it, get the shooting finished. But um, th- being able to do that and introduce into filmmaking again, he, you know, here's a kid, me, 1.24 GPA. I wasn't a writing English major in college. I didn't study film at Columbia, but I surround myself with smart people because I, I know what I don't know. And it's also a group of people that care. Uh, Anthony cares. Uh, Gardner Cole cares. He's doing the score to my documentary and he's done scores on Days of Thunder and Coming to America and Crossroads. And he was on Michael Jackson's production team and he's written songs for Tina Turner. And uh, it just, he's an amazing dude that, you know, just this amazing talent and cast of support that's helped me with this project. And so it, 
not only that, but I'm also the executive director of SaveTheBrave.org, which is a veteran nonprofit that helps combat vets with post-traumatic stress, connect through outreach programs. I am the president of the 2-4 Association, a 501c19. And, you know, so I, I don't sit around eating bonbons all day. And uh, in, between, in between those waves crashing in my inbox, uh, you know, I try to find some time to, to take care of myself, too. And uh, that's an important thing, too. But I, I love to stay busy. And I think that, that that mindset is, you know, it's really diversification of, of yourself and, and what you've learned throughout life and being able to apply that. There's a lot of utility in being great at one thing, but I think I found a way to take the one thing I'm great at and really spread it around into a couple of different uh, mediums um, to continue to support and, you know, really be mutually supporting of all the endeavors that I'm involved with. Now, you know, if one of my one of my friends, his name is John McCaskill, and he's a um, retired Navy SEAL commander. And what he he, he changed my life by him, him and his friend, Will, Will Snyder, was uh, they taught me how to learn to um, have a good morning routine and a good uh, evening routine. And because this way, you know, I try to meditate and get my mind right every day. So talk to us about how you keep your cup full and what kind of routine do you have nighttime and in the mornings? That's a good question. Uh, I think everybody's different. I like getting up early. I, I don't enjoy getting up early, but I get up early and I read because it's quiet. I'm unmolested by what's going on. I never turn the computer or phone on until uh, I absolutely have to. So I try and read and become a better student of other people's stories. And I'm not, I never served under Jim Mattis, but um, I do love his philosophy that if you haven't read a hundred books in your lifetime, you're functionally illiterate. And I was a horrible reader. I didn't read my first book until I was a Lance Corporal in Desert Storm, true, true confession. And it was Guns Up by Johnny M. Clark. And uh, I, so I read in the morning. I think that's important. And then I look at my inbox, look at my messages, anything urgent, I take care of it. If it's not urgent, I prioritize. And then I go and try and get an hour of, of PT in. I go to the gym. I'll go down to the, my barn, hit the heavy bag, uh, do something physical. Maybe it's just maybe it's just yard work or it's functional fitness. But I have to do that to balance myself and to stay healthy too, because it's it's vital to keep your mind sharp. And then I usually go through the regular business day and make calls. And then at night is when I prefer to write. So I feel like I'm most creative at night, which is I'm kind of a small percentage of writers that do that. I think a lot of guys write in the morning, but that's what I, that's my daily routine. I think that um, is, I don't know, it's pretty effective. I mean, it gets jostled around a little bit when pop-ups happen, but that's just life, you know? So I love it. And so last question that I asked, because you already asked questions of how we can support you. So uh, last question is, you know, um, we live in a crazy world still. We're still in a COVID world. Um, we got a, in here in New Jersey. We still have a lot of parents that lost jobs. So a lot of parents are driving Uber, DoorDash, you know, just to put food on the table. And we have grandparents that are still homeschooling kids. So if I ask the average American to do something in seven days, they're never going to get to it. 
But if I get somebody to take an actionable step in the next 24 hours, they're more likely to take that step. So if there's somebody out there that's struggling, can't decide what they want to do, or if they want to start pivoting in their life, what is something they can do in the next 24 hours to start to see the light? From a personal standpoint, you have to do that self-assessment and really ask yourself the hard questions. One is, what do I want to do? And what is the, the end, end game? I think that that's essential if, on a personal level, whether it's in business or being creative, that you have to do that. Maybe it applies to your family life, but you, you, I don't think people actually write things down anymore. They, they, there's a lot of utility in that drill of physically writing things down that are important to you and then where you want to be. So that's a, that's a timeless drill. Um, if people are really looking for a sense of purpose and mission in life, Pete Turner reminded me this last year when I rode my Harley across the country and back after my good friend Dave killed himself. And he, he taught me about the importance of charity and that it's not supposed to be easy. It's supposed to be hard. It's designed that way. It should be harder for you to give of your time that you want to spend relaxing or give of your money that you'd rather spend on a car or a meal. That charity is something that is, is vital to giving yourself a sense of purpose as well and helping others. And a lot of people think they can't make a difference uh, by just giving a donation or volunteering for something, but you can. And if everybody did that and gave a little bit to whatever organization, of course, ours is savethebrave.org, but we, we're committed to that because there's so many nonprofits out there, 45,000 alone in the veteran space. We're just doing what we're great at, and that's connecting veterans in a safe space through these outreach programs, our offshore fishing program. We went from one trip in 2015 to 27 trips this year, Richard. So if you're thinking you're, you're not making a difference or an impact, you are, and you, you're helping thousands of veterans and their family members reconnect and just kind of hit that reset button on life to really get them going on what they need to feel is important. So, uh, you know, I'm, I, I'm just very, very grateful to, you know, share a little bit of my story with you and to connect with you and uh, to anyone listening, if, you need a place to find me. I'm at Echo and Ramadi on Instagram. I'm at Echo and Ramadi on Facebook. And you can give to a great veteran nonprofit at savethebrave.org and just follow us and see what we're all about at savethebrave.org on Instagram. And it's an, ama- it's an amazing organization. I'm very fortunate to be a part of it. And uh, I, I tell you what, um, anyone out there, man, who's listening, just keep up the fire. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm I'm always I'm always astounded at some of the amazing success stories that I see from our tribe as they continue to do great things. Well, there you go, guys. Definitely pick up the book, Echo and Ramadi. Hope we just can't wait to see the movie that or documentary that's gonna be coming out soon. I'll be looking out for that. I gotta guess I gotta call my my talk to my brother Pete, say hi. It's been a while since I talked to him. Guys, definitely check out savethebrave.org. And guys, if you get if you're tired of drinking shitty coffee, 
definitely check out Soldier Girl Coffee because without her, I would not be able to put this show on. Scott, thank you so much, brother, for hanging out. Um, and as people know that when they come on my show, is the relationship just starts today. And I hope we can build on our relationship in the future. And I, I would love to collaborate more in the future. Absolutely, man. Thank you so much, man. Much love and, and simplify. Uh, my brother, God bless you and have an amazing week. Hey, guys, if you're enjoying our show, if you love what we're doing, if you would like to support us, we have a whole bunch of great stuff coming out. We have a brand new T-shirt line that's coming out. Hats, coffee mugs, any kind of swag that lets your friends know that you support Vertical Momentum and you're always looking to get better. Also, we have our new coffee brand coming out. It's called Vertical Momentum Coffee. It's ass-kicking coffee. And, and it, will, it will get you moving in the morning. So, guys, if you're interested, go to www.richardkaufman.net. Check us out, leave us a note, tell us what you'd like, and we'll actually send it to you. The new website is being built. So if you guys want to, our book is out there on Amazon. It's called A Hero's Journey from Darkness to Light. Definitely check it out. It talks about my story, but it also talks about how to survive depression, how to survive addiction. All right, guys, I love you. Thank you so much for always supporting our mission, which is to save lives. Thank you for joining us today. Please hit subscribe and share. Please feel free to leave us a comment.